You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is your host, Angie, and if you are an ocean or freshwater lover like myself, hopefully this interview will help get you inspired about reducing plastic pollution to help protect our oceans and the animals that live in them. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Ertl, and she is the Director of Science and Innovation at the Five Gyres Institute. The Five Gyres Institute is a nonprofit organization that empowers action against the global health crisis of plastic pollution through art, science, education, and of course, adventure. And Dr. Lisa Ertl is a microplastics researcher, and she'll be talking with us today all about the mission of Five Gyres, the science, the innovation, and the leadership that is making waves in plastic pollution reduction science. So hello, Lisa. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Hi, Angie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited and looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I must admit, it's so fun to have an expert like yourself on here. I'm definitely going to be picking your brain a lot today. So I have a a lot of questions. And so I hope our listeners will hang tight because we're going to go through a lot of the science. I I need to nerd out about uh, microbeads and microfibers. Uh, But of course, we're going to talk a lot about the mission of Five Gyres. And then also uh, towards the end of the interview, uh, Lisa and I were actually chatting before this interview and she has a plethora of really awesome solutions that the listener and myself can do without even living near an ocean. So there's so much Mm -hmm. we can do at home. And she has a nice toolkit for us, uh, for us listeners out there to help reduce our plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. So Excellent. Let's dive in. Yes. So before we get started, Lisa, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? What's your background? Yeah, sure. I I grew up on the Great Lakes. Uh, yes. I spent all my time um, like you. Um, we're yes. different different Great Lakes. I was on grew up on Lake Ontario. Yes. And you on I, Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm, across yeah, across the state of Michigan. But it's uh, it was a wonderful childhood, and I definitely fell in love with the water very early on. Yeah. So I was just I was just downstream of you, and you know I I grew up um, playing in the water. Um, Growing up in a time where there was this uh, environmental, really, revival in, in the Great Lakes. it was The Great Lakes were very famous for um, being polluted, especially in the 1970s. There were rivers shortly before that just that were catching on fire, like the Cuyahoga River. And I think... Um, there, there is this, there, there's this feeling that they're, they're, they're too polluted to swim in, to drink the water, to fish in, but really, um, throughout my, my lifetime, I, I saw these, you know, imp- improvements in the Great Lakes, but, um, 
I didn't I didn't realize that until much later in my in in my education in school that there there were these contaminants where they were coming from and there are these these particles like microplastics that are in the water and even though there have been very many contaminants that have been banned thinking about certain flame retardants these industrial chemicals many of of which have you know have um been mostly eradicated and, and you really see this improvement in fish but um there are other contaminants like like microplastics that are contaminating the great lakes and contaminating habitats around the world one of my first jobs after finishing university was sailing in the south salish sea it was on a hundred year old schooner this sailboat that would go into the ocean we would collect samples of plankton and also teach kids about marine life. And one thing we would do is we would take these these nets, throw it off, off the side of the boat, and 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 do a trawl towing for for plankton. But mixed in with uh, this zooplankton and and phytoplankton, there were these brightly colored um, microplastics mixed in. Some of them as the same size as uh, these animals that were at the base of the food web. And as a biologist, from my studies, you know, I really realized that it's this small stuff, this small microplastic, this plastic that's less than five millimeters in size that could be getting into food webs and taken up by animals, and then having these cascading effects throughout food webs. So it's one of the things that motivated me to go and do my PhD, really studying uh, the effect of these plastic particles uh, in food webs. And would you mind touching on plastic pollution in our oceans and waterways? How bad is it? How much plastic is in the ocean? Are we doing any better? Is it trending down or trending up? Yeah, it's a really good question. We have a paper um, at Five Gyres in review right now with some of the plastic pollution researchers that um, that first brought awareness to the issue of plastic pollution in the ocean. And what we what we found is that the plastic pollution in the ocean has really changed over time. So we saw a downward trend around the time that certain international policies like MARPOL preventing the intentional dumping of plastic in the oceans. Um, but then we see a steady rise starting around the early 2000s of more plastic pollution uh, in the oceans. And what this tells us is that these international policies, they can work, but right now we don't have any international policies that can really prevent um, plastic from getting into the ocean. So we're seeing this rise and this rise of plastic in the ocean matches the rise of plastic production and waste. Um, and we see that habitats around the world are contaminated, whether you look at the middle of the ocean, rivers, lakes, even in the air, we see that there's plastic pollution that's uh, contaminating habitats and then are impacting species. There are hundreds of species around the world that are, um, that are documented as interacting with plastic pollution in some way, whether it's ingestion or entanglement. So it's a, it's a problem for plastic, both big and small. And, and there are, there are habitats around the world. It's actually quite rare when a study comes out and finds um, that there's no plastic. It's quite rare, even places as far away and remote as the Arctic and Antarctic still have contamination. Wow. And I was uh, looking at some numbers or some, there's like trillions of, is it pieces or pounds of pl estimated to be in the ocean? Or do we have a 
of course, it's just an estimate, but is there a number out there? Yeah, we we at Five Gyres um, published a study years ago that found trillions of plastic in the surface of the oceans. And that's just the oceans. We know from more research that's come out in recent years that there is also a ton of plastic contamination in freshwater rivers and in lakes and in in habitats that we don't often think of when we think of plastic pollution like terrestrial soils agricultural soils have plastic some that are deposited from the air also others that are applied as fertilizers there are plastics in fertilizers um, whether it's industrial fertilizers or fertilizers that are coming from sewage sludge we know that uh, these fibers are 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 trapped in sewage and that's often land applied as a fertilizer. So there's there's many different pathways and and when I think of plastic pollution both in the ocean and on land is it's really it's a diverse suite of contaminants. They have lots of different polymers, different sources, different additives, different colors and um different sources and solutions. Uh, and we need to think about all of these different sources to the environment and solutions for fishing gear in the middle of the ocean will be very different from car tires or textiles. So by thinking about this issue in a, in a very, very broad way, first learning about the oceans and then, then moving upstream, trying to think about where these different taps are that we can turn off to prevent that plastic from getting into the environment in the first place. Well, and uh, Lisa, for people that might be listening to this that either don't spend time in the ocean or in a, near a waterway, why should they care about plastics in the ocean or on our coastlines or in our freshwater lakes or in our soil? I mean, why, do, why should we care about plastics in our environment? We know that there's a range of negative effects. Um, studies from the laboratory show that plastic pollution, um, especially microplastics, can have these negative effects when they're ingested by animals. And, and these larger pieces of plastic, these macroplastics, can fragment and break, break apart over time and become these microplastic particles. We've seen, including um, some of my research um, from the University of Toronto, that these microplastics can have impacts on feeding behavior, on growth, um, reproduction, chemicals in both the plastic can, can be endocrine disrupting. So um, they can have impacts on the hormones of different animals. And there can be um, these, these observed um, changes to um, the hepatosomatic index, for example. So the size of the liver in relation to the rest of the fish showing signs of stress. So these particles are are transferring chemicals. They're also causing these ecological effects that can have these impacts at, at the whole ecosystem level. We also know that these particles are getting into us. Um, we see that microplastics are in drinking water. They're in the seafood we eat. They're in the air that we breathe and getting into our lungs. Um, they're in all of these different things that we are eating and drinking and breathing. So we're, we're literally um, consuming and breathing in our trash. And we don't fully know the effects to human health. Um, but I think um, what it warrants is this precautionary principle of, of trying to keep these particles out of the environment. Um, and we do know enough to act, even if we don't have all of the answers yet. Well, yeah, and we, I, we've all seen the pictures of either like a, a seabird or a marine mammal where then they, they, they open it up and then its stomach is just full of 
not necessarily microplastics. I'm sure those that's in its blood, but like large bottle caps and other things that the the larger animals might mistake for food. Let alone yeah, yeah. the smaller animals like the plankton that you're eating that, like you said, has the microplastics in it. So yeah, we I mean, see we see microplastics in in these smaller animals, and like you said, in these these larger animals, you see this macroplastic, and and there this plastic can can um, cause blockages and sure makes them like full right they they don't want to eat any of their normal food exactly a false sense of satiation so being full and not getting the proper nutrition that they that they need and 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 can ultimately lead to lead to death um five gyres was a part of a study looking at terrestrial animals recently looking at camels in the desert and finding that plastic bags there there were hundreds of plastic bags in a single camel there um there's often food residue on on these bags and and um, camels would would eat them and they would cause these um, blockages they would build up in these gastroliths in the digestive tracts of camels um but um what what i found so fascinating in this research is that um that research led to a local ban on on plastic bags in Dubai um, because there was data it could then inform local policy change and solutions so now in Dubai um, there is less plastic being used and then ultimately less plastic leaking into the environment there weren't um, great waste management so um, the you know the easiest the easiest thing to do and to change was to just create a create a ban on on plastic bags. And so, Lisa, that leads me into my next question, all about five gyres. I want to get to the mission and the goals, but first, can you give us a little history or a background on what an ocean gyre is and how it works? And I'm assuming how you came up with the name. Yeah. So essentially, what a gyre is is an accumulation zone due to ocean currents. There are five subtropical gyres. There are two in the Pacific, two in the Atlantic, and one in the Indian Ocean. And because of movement of surface currents, uh, it creates this accumulation zone. Some people might be familiar with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This is an ocean gyre. But what we've learned over the years is it's not this floating island of trash, twice the size of Texas. It's not something you can walk on and stand on or see see really from outer space, but really what it is is it's this smog of the sea. It's this accumulation zone of these small microplastic particles. And what you see if you're sailing through the middle of one of these ocean gyres is on a calm day, the surface of the ocean really looks like a confetti of microplastics. You do see some of these macroplastic items too, um, like ghost fishing gear, these abandoned fishing nets, and buoys and jugs that are coming off of um, fishing operations, um, some that have really negative impacts where they are continuously fishing even though they're not um, in active operation anymore. So that's where you get these ghost fishing nets where they are still in the the water and catching fish and killing fish, but um, not actively being recovered. Um, so, so that's really what we see in these ocean gyres and we do see plastic pollution there. And and it's, it's one thing that really, um, and 
got this issue into into the into the general public zeitgeist. People started to talk about plastic in the oceans, um, but. As we've learned more, we really see that some of the most contaminated areas of the world are um, inland rivers and, and lakes and coastlines because often the plastic pollution that is leaking from, from cities and from other, other habitated areas, it's going to wash back ashore um, and not necessarily travel to the middle of the ocean. Some, some can, and we see a lot of fishing gear, for example, in the middle of the oceans, um, but there are a lot of solutions that are needed uh, close to shore, close to where people live. And so what is the mission uh, and goals of the Five Gyres Institute? Our mission is to empower action um, and empowering action against the global health crisis of plastic pollution. And we do this through science. I'm a scientist. I do research. I collaborate with, with universities in learning more about um, plastic in the environment. Um, I'm a traditional scientist, so I find science and asking those questions really interesting. But I don't just do science for the sake of science. I like it to have um, an ultimate goal and impact and inform policies, for example, because uh, science can be used for good decision making. And I think when decision making can be based on facts, it is the most um, effective. So we also do work on education, both educating the public and policymakers so those decisions can be based on facts. And we're active in advocacy, trying to advocate for the solutions that we know can be effective and for things like global um, policies that can reduce plastic from getting into the environment. Well, Lisa, I know you spend a lot of time on the ocean uh, collecting samples and getting data, but would Mm -hmm. you mind touching on how much ocean that Five Gyres collectively as an institute and a team of scientists, how much have you guys explored and collected Mm -hmm. data on? We've sailed the world's oceans and also in freshwater environments too. We've done nearly 20 ocean expeditions, collecting data from the ocean gyres. Um, We've sailed all the subtropical gyres, collecting data and really coming up with an estimate of how much plastic pollution is in the ocean and tracking trends over time to see what's happening and if our policies are effective at reducing plastic that's in the ocean. Our expedition on the Great Lakes um, took these surface water samples in three of the Great Lakes. And what we found were these microbeads, these plastic scrubbing beads. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with it. They're now banned in face scrubs and toothpastes. Um, But the study on the Great Lakes was the first to show these um, microplastics were ubiquitous in different lakes and all over um, the environment and ultimately led to a ban on these microbeads first in California, then uh, happened in the United States and other jurisdictions around the world. So that's often been our um, our goal is to, to take science and, and ultimately turn them into solutions. So following our publication in 2013, um, we've uh, ultimately led to these these different policies around the world. And it's really not needed as uh, as an abrasive and things, these, these microbeads. 
Well, yeah, I mean, looking uh, through your website and learning more about your organization, I mean, I got goosebumps seeing that you guys were at the forefront of the campaign to get rid of these microbeads that were unnecessary and unneeded in several beauty products and in your, that your science then actually helped create policy change. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine a reduction in microbeads that are now in a lot of these waterways. Yeah, yeah. There's some there's some science right now that's tracking tracking that and looking at wastewater, for example. So measuring before and after beads, um, the microbead ban, and um, and quantifying the the microbeads. And I think that's a really important part of science as well. Um, not just finding these novel results, but but doing this long-term monitoring. Because with that long-term monitoring, we know whether when policies are introduced, whether they have this positive impact that we want to see. So I think, um, you know, in addition to having the science that informs the policies, it's also important to, to do that science after to see see if it works. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and for me, it gives me a lot of hope that uh, policymakers were able to come together and look at the data in an unbiased way and be like, "Yep, this is in the best, in- you know, the best interest of the water, the animals, people that drink the water." And so, I was so happy to see that ban uh, in the United States. And you said that there were other bans in are the European countries or internationally that ban mi- microbead plastics, or how how is that looking internationally? Yeah, there are countries around the world that have banned microbeads. I'm not sure what the number is right now, the number of countries that have banned it, but it's it's at least dozens of countries trending um, up, right? And there's been this there's been this shift away from from using microbeads and and you're right, I think it is a good example of where science can inform policy. Um but we also know that microbeads um, are just a fraction of the microplastics that we see in the environment. Um, we still have lots of other types of microplastic pollution from other sources, whether it's textiles or car tires, single-use plastics that are fragmenting. So we need these various solutions to, um, to impact um, the plastic that we see in the environment. But the same could be done. You have these these targeted policies that can eliminate a source of plastic to the environment, and then you track it over time to see whether or not those policies actually work and reduce that specific type of microplastic. Absolutely, uh, Lisa. It, I love when that's able to happen. And I was wondering if you could touch on uh, microfibers. I know that you're a microfiber expert, and I was hoping that you could help educate myself and our listeners on what they are and how they are polluting our oceans. And is there anything being done to help stop yeah, that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of the, one of the unseen and, and under-talked about types of microplastics uh, in the environment. We know from research in laboratories that a single load of laundry can release hundreds of thousands or millions of microfibers in a single load. Um, Many of your listeners may be familiar with cleaning out the lint trap in your dryer. Um, All that lint is microfibers. And there's also these microfibers, this lint that's released in wash, but we don't necessarily see it because it goes down the drain some of these fibers are released directly into aquatic ecosystems. There have been studies that show that a single wastewater treatment plant can release millions 
of microfibers uh, into the environment in a single day. Um, and there's also these fibers that can be trapped in sludge, and those can also be introduced into ecosystems. Uh, but we know that there's these solutions, and they can be applied as a solution to reduce fibers from washing. We did uh, research in our lab at the University of Toronto where we um, washed items both with and without these microfiber filters. And we found that a, a washing machine filter for microfibers can capture up to 90% of microfibers in a load of laundry. Um, we then took that research uh, we applied these filters in people's homes. Um, we had filters installed in people's homes and monitored the wastewater over two years and found a significant reduction in microfibers. So we know that this, this is one source of microfibers to the environment, but it's also something that has a solution um, and a solution that could be applied at scale. So the next logical step could be to have filters directly built into washing machines, just like our dryers have these lint traps. Yes, I want one of those. I do a lot, I have a lot of kids and I do a lot of laundry. <laughs> it yeah. seems like. And so, and my lint trap is always full. And I think it's it's sometimes hard for me to imagine that plastic pollution, these microfibers are coming off of my clothes because the clothes that I wear don't feel like plastic. They're, they don't they don't seem like uh, the micro beads from a face scrub, and they don't mm -hmm. seem like plastic that my my lunch might be wrapped in or or grocery a grocery bag. Um, I, I, most of my clothes I feel like are soft. So mm -hmm. is this just because that so much of our clothing is now made from is it rayon or uh, parts of parts of plastic? Is that where these fibers are coming from? Yeah, our, our, it's a good question. Our clothes are made of a range of different materials. So um, or nylon or yeah, I guess yeah, there, a lot. there's it, it, it really runs the gamut of synthetics to natural. So when we talk about synthetic textiles, these are the nylons and the polyesters. Um, there are also these semi-synthetic fibers that are often regenerated cellulose. So that's like the tensile, the rayon. Um, there are natural fibers too, which can be plant-based like cotton or, um, or linen um, or hemp. There's lots of different, different fabrics. Um, and also these protein-based fabrics as well. So I'm thinking about wool and cashmere. So there's a range of different materials that we use, but even these natural fibers, whether it's cotton or wool, it can have a substantial component of synthetic chemicals or plastic. Some wool is coated in a thin layer of polyurethane, which is a plastic, to make it more machine washable and softer and easier to wear. Mm -hmm. And you have these um, other natural fibers like cotton. A study found that cotton can be one-third synthetic chemicals by weight. So even though we know that these plastic microfibers, they're not going to break down in the environment, there can be these natural fibers too. And these chemicals can either impair its biodegradation, so how it breaks down in the environment or can impact its toxicity if there are these toxic chemicals that are applied as finishes, dyes, treatments, um, that can impact uh, what that fiber does when it enters the environment. Wow, Lisa, you're blowing my mind here, but I appreciate it. I need, I need these wake-up calls and I think part of the solution is being informed. And so I'm so glad you're here today and helping me rethink that 
maybe all cotton clothing or hemp clothing is not necessarily the answer. Uh, and for me, it's not necessarily affordable either, or for most mm. people. So it is, I really do like the idea of stopping it at the washing machine. I, 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 we, we will have to stay in touch because once that becomes available, I need that in my washing machine, mm-hmm. um, as do probably many of our listeners. And, mm-hmm. so, and it might be a couple solutions that are, that are coming together at the same time. So it could be stopping these fibers at the washing machine and also redesigning textiles so they shed they shed less. But we do know that washing and drying our clothing is really hard on it. A textile expert once told me that putting our clothing through a a washing machine and a dryer is like putting our clothing through warfare. It can be really, really hard on textiles and they break and they, um, as they get worn and start to pill um, with lint, um, these are microfibers. So it's, so it's showing signs of damage to the textile and releasing these fibers uh, to the environment. Well, you touched on a little bit in the last answer about um, plant-based either proteins or fibers such Mm -hmm. as hemp. Uh, now, as far as plant-based products and or compostable products or biodegradable products, are these a tangible solution? Do they really degrade? Like when I buy a biodegradable garbage bag or a compostable garbage bag, am I, am I making the right choice? Uh, Mm. how does it work? That's a good question. And there is a lot of greenwashing around this. So I think it can be really difficult to evaluate um, what the best choices are. Um, I am hopeful, though, that biodegradable plastics can be part of the solution, but I think it has a very specific use case. So I can get into that a little bit. Um, when we're talking about plant-based and biodegradable, sometimes these are the same thing, but sometimes they are not. There are um, items that are marketed as being biodegradable that are not plant-based, that are instead um, made from fossil fuels. Um, for example, there is a biodegradable um, polymer, PBAT, which is um, biodegradable in and industrial composters, um, but it is not plant-based. It's instead made from mostly or entirely from from fossil fuels. There are also these plant-based polymers that are biodegradable. So you can have things that are plant-based that are not biodegradable. You can have things that are both, and you can have things that are fossil fuel-based that are biodegradable. And what it really comes down to is the type of polymer, so what kind of plastic it is, um, what additives there are in it, and um, and how they're made. Because you can have these different processes in making something like a biodegradable plastic, um, something like PBAT. It can be made from either plant-based sources or fossil fuel-based sources, but it's often made almost um, entirely or at least in part by these fossil fuel based sources. So there's, there, there's, there's a, it's important to di- uh, distinguish between those, those, um, those types of polymers and what it actually does. We know that some of these uh, polymers that are marketed as biodegradable are only biodegradable in very certain conditions. We saw a surge of PLA hitting the market years ago. Um, many, it's probably the first time they saw biodegradable plastics on things like 
forks and knives and many of these single-use plastics. But what we found from PLA is that while it's biodegradable in very specific conditions, so industrial composters that reach a certain temperature over a certain number of days, they're not biodegradable when they leak into the environment. We see that these PLA straws or bags or single-use other single-use plastics um, remain almost entirely unchanged when they are in the ocean or they're in soils. So they might be biodegradable in specific conditions, but in the environment, they don't. I am hopeful, though, that there are some of these new polymers um, like PHA that are biodegradable in industrial composters and also biodegradable in the environment. But it might only be for some specific things like um, thin films, like bags. When we see PHA or PHA blended items that are thick, they don't easily break down in the environment. So, Like a could, fork or a knife or something like, like a that. A fork or a knife. Because it's so thick, uh, it's really hard for microbes to get into the item and cause, cause um, this breaking down of, of the plastic. Um, so, in, so instead, it might, might be... Um, helpful for certain things like really thin films where it actually has the potential to biodegrade in the environment. And are there any other plant-based types of um, either biodegradable or compostable plastics like hemp or anything else or any enzyme-based treatments that are up and coming or are somewhat hopeful? there's, There's a range that are really effective at breaking down the environment, thinking about different starch-based um, polymers. Um, but what's really challenging is to have all of the durability and um, moisture resistance properties of these traditional plastics and also being able to break down your your um you're trying to design for something that is both durable and lasting, but also can can break down in the environment. So it's a real design challenge, but there are great innovators that are working on this issue. And um, a company, for example, Sway, who's making these thin films out of seaweed. I see a lot of material innovations. Um, and I am hopeful that these biodegradable materials can be part of the solution. But to date, there's been a lot of greenwashing. There's also little consumer confidence because when PLA first hit the market, it was marketed as biodegradable, but it was incredibly misleading because it wasn't biodegradable in the environment. So there's a lot of there's a lot of distrust about this labeling, and rightfully so, because things were um, really mislabeled. Um, but I, I do see some some great material innovations in the space, and it can be part of the solution. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for that and helping to educate us and give us some hope um, mm-hmm. and also help us know when we're purchasing to not make sure we're not being greenwashed and that we are uh and they are buying a product that actually can do what it's saying it can do, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So. And, and I think it's a responsibility that we all have to to really dig into those marketing claims um, and ask ask companies, you know, your packaging says it's biodegradable. Is it really biodegradable? What does that mean? Is it backyard right. compostable? Is it biodegradable in an industrial composter? Do I live in a place that has an industrial composter? And waste management can really differ from even city to city in the United States. So it can be it can be a very complex and nuanced 
um, thing. And I think we need some we need some better rules and regulations to to make it easier for the average consumer who's you know maybe buying a box of poop bags and you you want to make the right choice, but you're not necessarily given all the information of what what the right choice is. Hey, batter, batter, are you ready to hit a home run with flavor? Step up to the plate and swing by Penn Station East Coast Subs, where every bite is a grand slam. Craving a classic Philly cheesesteak or maybe a savory chicken teriyaki? Or how about loading up on their delicious fresh-cut fries? Call it a triple play by ordering Penn Station's signature fresh-squeezed lemonade. When it comes to subs, Penn Station is the big league. Order online at penn-station.com or stop at a store near you. Penn Station East Coast Subs. Well, now, Lisa, that leads me into my next question about ocean plastics. And I know the mission at Five Gyres is to reduce plastic consumption and use science and policy to help clean up the oceans or maybe not clean up the oceans, but reduce the amount of plastics going into the oceans. But would you mind touching on what is happening with ocean cleanup and are any campaigns that are out there, are those successful? Not really. <laughs> Not in the way that people think they should be working because okay. once plastic's in the environment, it's not easily cleaned up. And I think intuitively we all know this, but it's much more effective to focus on solutions that are preventative rather than cleaning up the plastic once it gets into the environment. But still, with, with all this plastic in the environment, these trillions of plastics in the oceans, um, the question to me that it raises is, well, what do we do about the plastic that's already there? But what we know is, is to date, most of these clean, cleanup efforts, they've distracted from the root source of the problem, which is over overconsumption, um, poor waste management, this leakage of plastic into the environment. And, and activities like ocean cleanup, they've raised millions of dollars um, to clean up the ocean, but only having a very small impact on cleanup. Um, and we've, we've seen this before where there have been these distractions from the real solutions as far back as the 1950s, Keep America Beautiful, which was an organization founded by large companies in the United States. They coined the term litter bugs. What they did is they created these posters, they created these ad campaigns that were really targeting individuals as being the source of the plastic pollution problem. It's a tactic which really shifted the narrative um, and shifted the blame and, and putting the spotlight on, on individuals rather than corporations saying, hey, you, you're the problem, not us. Don't litter. Um, and over time, they've also tried to create this narrative that recycling is an effective part of the plastic solution, um, saying, you know, we can produce all this plastic, it'll be recycled. But it's a it's a it's a false solution. Less than 10% of plastic that's ever been produced has been recycled. Less than 10%. That's yeah, that's let's such pa- a let's pause there for a second. Small number. It's so small and I've just been, you know, the more that I've been reading and of course I practice um, uh, recycling here in my own home and at work. And I mean, I will, I will take anything with me when I'm, I went out and about and I always keep my area clean and recycled as much as possible. But yeah, it's very disheartening learning that most of what I am recycling each week does not get recycled. 
Yeah, and and a lot of companies even if I follow the right numbers and it's even if you, know, you follow only the, the right rules, yeah, mm-hmm. because if something even though, even though something can be technically recycled, um, this is more a um, more an aspect of what the polymer is and if it can be recovered. Um, many are, are familiar with that chasing arrows sign, the recycling symbol that's on different items and has different numbers, um, and those different numbers are different polymers. So polyethylene has a different number from poly, um, propylene has a different number from high density polyethylene. Um, and even though those items can be technically recycled, a high density polyethylene plastic, it can be recycled, but it can be very costly to recover that material. So it's not always done in practice. So even though something can be technically recycled and has that recycling symbol on it, it doesn't mean that it will be recycled when it when it's picked up. So I think um, the, that chasing arrow sign can be incredibly misleading um, and indicate to people that it's re- recyclable and will be recycled when actually in practice it's not. Many thin films, for example, it's just not um, economical to be able to um, recover those materials. There's some that have relatively higher recycling rates, thinking about um, polyethylene, for example, like PET bottles. Um, they can be um, more easily recycled um, and, and used, used again. Um, but other polymers, um, the recycling rates are much, much lower. Well, and it was my understanding too that for those like the, the Pepsi and the Coke bottles, plastic bottles, uh, they can be recycled. And they are easier technically to recycle than some of the other types of plastic. But there also has to be a market for recycled plastics. And isn't exactly. it exactly? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it much easier for these large companies to just, it's cheaper for them to make new plastic and get that from their local source? than mm-hmm. actually recycling mm-hmm. plastic that's already been used. Exactly, exactly what you said. Easier and cheaper to use virgin plastics than to use recycled. And starting to shift, um, large companies have made commitments that they'll use recycled PET, for example, instead of virgin. Um, but that's more coming from um, a, a consumer... Demand. Um, Right. Consumer demand, mm-hmm. um, demanding more recycled material or policies that will require a certain amount of recycled content in that plastic. And these supply chains are complicated. We, we're also seeing a, a rise in demand for recycled polyester um, in clothing, for example. A lot of consumers are demanding not virgin plastics in their polyester fleece or t-shirts and and brands are marketing the recycled polyester that they're using. But um, we know that what that does is it creates a a new demand for recycled um, PET, uh, a polymer that could be used for um, food grade plastics again but instead what it's doing is it's leaving that leaving a a loop and it's not a perfectly closed loop because there's so much aversion material still going into food packaging but you have this recycled material like recycled water bottles and pop bottles that can then be turned into polyester and then that's the end of life once it becomes polyester it's not going to be recycled and recovered Um, so what you see is you know 
constantly shifting and these different materials are, are linked. These, these food packaging materials are linked to textiles, but the textiles can be a dead end. Um, really, um, I think it's great to, to shift towards more recycled materials and food packaging, at least for the short term, but it's not a long-term solution because you, you still have, you don't have a, a continuously closed loop. In thinking about uh, a lot of these issues that as we're learning more and the, and the science is getting there, we're getting more data, what is Five Gyres uh, doing and what programs are they taking initiative to help basically either make action or educate or help educate people towards making better choices? Can mm-hmm. you go through some of your programs with yeah, us? Yeah, Five Gyres has a trash blitz um, program where cities are doing these these trash audits, collecting data on the plastic there in the environment, um, and ultimately can inform local policies. Um, the plastic pollution that's in a town like Austin might be very different from a small town in Florida or rural upstate New York, different from LA, and the solutions that can be applied at the city level can vary. And this summer, we're leading a campaign to collect data on plastic pollution in national parks across the U.S. And the public can join in by registering for a cleanup in a national park and submitting data um, to Trash Blitz and contributing to uh, research at Five Gyres. Ooh, like citizen science. Exactly. I love that. And speaking of Five Gyres at um, both the community level and then, of course, um, within the Institute, what are some of the ways that Five Gyres is committed to fostering a diverse and inclusive and equitable organization, not only for the staff, but also for the public that they're serving? Yeah, it's a really good question. Something that we come back to all the time is how to make sure that we're inclusive, equitable. One thing that we're very active in right now is language justice and making sure that our uh, educational materials, the science that we do is available in multiple languages um, and supporting environmental and social justice organizations that we partner with. Um, We want to make sure that other Organizations can be brought to the table, including groups that have been historically excluded or underrepresented in decision making. But we know that these voices are are essential um, to be able to have uh, decisions that will be effective and that will stick. So, making sure that we can we can include as as many different voices and organizations as we can. Well, one of the reasons your um, your organization really stuck out to me and why I'm so happy to have you here and, and taking a lot of your time learning about plastics and solutions is that Five Gyres has over 1,800 ambas- ambassadors mm-hmm. in 67 countries. Mm-hmm. So how could one of our listeners, regardless of their background, uh, how could they get involved with helping reduce plastic pollution and become an ambassador for Five Gyres? Yeah, to become an ambassador for Five Gyres, you can um, apply online, sign up and join our network. We're, um, We're constantly trying to improve the program offering opportunities for ambassadors to share local policy successes and campaigns, um, educational tools, and really cross-pollinate to be able to accelerate solutions because we can't 
we can't do change just um, in a small bubble and, and it'll take uh, a global community of people working together to, to solve the global health crisis of plastic pollution. Yeah, there's definitely not one silver bullet. It's definitely complex and will take people at the local level and then all the way up, of course, to the company and, and government policy level. Exactly. But for us, regular people that are not the policymakers um, or the, the head of some large uh, soda or pop, as we say from the myth. Did you say pop? I say you? pop too. Awesome. Yeah. I knew I liked you, Dr. Lisa. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for those of us for the uh, that don't um, own or shareholders in a, in a large pop company that's creating um, some of the plastic pollution, what can we as individuals on a local level or in our house um, what can we do to help reduce plastic pollution on our end? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I think what individuals can do is really threefold. It's individual action, putting pressure on companies to make change, and and really using our voices um, through advocacy and voting and, and influencing policies. At the, at the scale of our households, we can do a waste audit, um, look at the plastic that we are throwing in the trash or recycling, and looking at ways to reduce our plastic footprint. If you follow Five Gyres, you can give, give um, proactive tools on how to do your own home waste audit and, and really look at your individual plastic footprint. But we also see that there's plastic in our in our closets and in durable goods and toys. There's there's many different uses of plastic in our everyday lives. And we're not going to completely cut that out. In a lot of ways, plastic has had a lot of benefits. It makes our airplanes lighter, so we use less fossil fuels to fly around the world. It it is incredibly important for personal protective equipment and medical uses. Um, we've seen, you know, how important um, plastic can be uh, during COVID nineteen, whether it's whether it's vaccines or masks and many different things. Um, so we're not going to completely wipe out plastic, but we can think about ways to support um, circularity instead of buying single use plastics using refillables, for example. Um, but that, you know, is a one small part of the, the bigger the bigger picture. There's putting um, pressure on corporations to make sure that there is truth in advertising. Like we talked about, something that's biodegradable is actually biodegradable. Encouraging companies to use less plastic when it's unnecessary. A lot of companies are really innovating and eliminating um Plastic that is not necessary. The, com- the clothing company Prana, I think, is a really good example where they are leading um, the plastic-free packaging movement. Instead of having clothing items arrive in poly bags, they're using this roll pack. Oh, method and then all and the little plastic pieces on the to, to, to get the tags off. There are. Exactly. I bought my socks the other day, and it was like there was like twelve socks. Yeah. Each pair is so six pairs, or maybe there's twelve pairs. I'm not sure, but each one had like seven or eight of those little plastic tees to separate them. Yeah. And first of all, I needed those socks because, well, I didn't have any clean socks. So so I needed to use them right there. So it was hard to open. It was unnecessary. I obviously can't recycle Mm -hmm. all that plastic. I tried to make sure that it at least went into the trash so none of it ends up either, you know, in the floor and then blowing outside or something. But so much unnecessary 
plastic. Yeah. And, I mean, and you know, something as simple as writing a letter or a quick email to a company saying, you know, I like your product, but I don't want to buy plastic packaging it can be can be effective. Companies, if they get enough um, responses from people, they'll listen. So uh, often I'll just shoot a quick email and say, you know, why do you need this? Can you change your material? Have you heard of Prana and what they're doing to reduce plastic in, in clothing packaging? So there's there's those actions um, that, you know, we can only make so many changes. If we don't have options to buy things without plastic, um, it's it can be really hard. So, so making choices to reduce your plastic footprint, but at the same time also putting pressure on companies to reduce the amount of plastic in their products and packaging. And then ultimately um, asking decision makers what they're doing at the local, state, or federal level to reduce plastic pollution. Yes, and I have to admit, I I always try to reduce my plastic consumption, and I definitely vote with my dollar as much as I can afford Mm -hmm. uh, for buying either low plastic, plastic plastic-free, or uh, recyclable-type materials but I, you know, I must admit, I'm not a big letter writer. Mm-hmm. And so my goal for the month of July, because All Creatures Podcast, we host Plastic Free July. Great. It's this eco challenge. I'm um, not sure if you've heard of it, but it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go plastic free because that's just really unrealistic. I, mm-hmm. I know there's people out there that have tried it and written books about it. And I, I, I applaud them, but it's not very realistic in my lifestyle. But yeah, of course. This this July challenge uh, that we participate as a team because it takes a village. You can just pick little individual challenges, just one, one a day, uh, one a week, whatever they are. And there's always that letter writing one. And I just, for me, I haven't done it yet. So Lisa, you've inspired me this month. I am going to pick, let's see, what's a good number? Four. I will pick four products. Well, uh, one a week. That's that great. bug me like these socks and there's several other ones. Uh, and I will write a letter and, uh, and I not sure it, it can't hurt. It might help. Right. Well, as a mom who has limited time, you could also encourage your kids. I've also talked to teachers about this, encouraging their students to write letters. Cause even though, even though young people don't have voting power, they still have a voice. Absolutely. And could could write letters mm-hmm. to companies or to local policymakers to ask for those sorts of changes. And and kids get it. Kids see that there's plastic in the environment, and they intuitively know that it's not a good thing. And I think um, you know, if I was a CEO or if I was a local politician, getting a letter from a kid saying that they don't want plastic in the environment, um, I think would have an impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for someone listening to this podcast uh, that hopefully is inspired as I know I am after uh, all the teaching that you've done today and all the learning that we're experiencing by Mm -hmm. listening to your expertise, uh, what are some of the best ways for listeners uh, to get involved and support Five Gyre's mission? There's many ways people can get involved, but I would encourage people to follow us on social media, become an ambassador if you're interested in local advocacy and action, and to get involved in local policies that work in your your cities to reduce plastic pollution in the environment, whether it's leading a cleanup and then collecting data on the types of items, and then really working to 
see what sort of plastic is getting into the environment and then working towards solutions to prevent that leakage. If you do a cleanup and find a lot of cigarette butts, that could be um, a, a needed um, policy to reduce cigarette butts from going to the environment, say. So, so collecting data, getting involved, and um, ultimately trying to push for action. Yes, definitely. And I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to follow Five Gyres. And you can find them at www.5, like the number, and then gyres, G-Y-R-E-S dot org. And of course, we will be promoting them on our social media channels as well. And um, a lot of information about the Five Gyres Institute can be found on our show notes as well at allcreaturespod.com. And lastly, Lisa, I have to ask, um, you're so inspirational and such a great teacher, and I love all of your solutions that you've been giving us throughout this Mm. podcast. Do you you. have any advice for someone that's passionate about saving our oceans, our waterways, and helping reduce plastic pollution so it doesn't get into into the animal systems or into our systems? Yeah, I'd say, you know, join us, get involved. Um, There are a multitude of ways that people can get involved. And as a collective unit, I really think we can turn the tide on plastic pollution. Right now, there needs to be more focus on reduction strategies, these reduction strategies that can be applied at scale. Um, We've heard a lot about cleanup strategies, but we need um, to shift the focus on reduction. So so getting involved in that, both in your personal lives and in focusing on policies and corporate change that can help make that happen. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Lisa Ertl, for being here today and talking with us on All Creatures Podcast. Uh, please, everyone, go to www.5gyres.org or, of course, uh, 5 Gyres on any of the main social media platforms. Give them a like and a follow. Uh, tell them what you think, at, uh, and you will definitely be informed. Their website is beautiful. And, of course, learning each day on my feed, uh, on my social media feed, about what they're doing and how they're helping and how I can get involved is really inspiring. So definitely give them a follow. And, uh, Lisa, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here today and helping helping open my eyes about plastic pollution uh, reductions and solutions and I hope that you and I can keep this conversation going. I want to, yeah. I want to check back in maybe next this time next year and see how are we doing? How are we doing with those microfibers and some of the other um, plastic issues that are out there? I'd be happy to check in and, and continue to give some practical strategies that can reduce our overall plastic footprint. And thanks so much for your interest and for everyone. Um, I think it takes a village. It definitely takes a village. So thank you, Dr. Lisa, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.